Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, J.M. Prater, and I'm joined by guest host today, Ian Suter, who is the admin and founder of Blade Runner the Blade Runner group on Facebook and the Blade Runner 2049 fan group on Facebook, which are the largest Blade Runner groups on Facebook. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. And uh, another guest today, and we're going to talk more with him about his story after the main discussion, Ricardo. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jamie. Here we are. Uh, we just rec- Well, we just released an episode on love character from Blade Runner 2049, as everyone should know by now. And uh, I listened to it. I was not present on that um, discussion. I was busy that day. Ian was supposed to be on that episode. And Ricardo had asked me, um, hey, if you guys record about love, I would love to be on the episode. No pun intended. And uh, they recorded that episode without me. And then I thought, after listening to the episode, and I'm listening through, I'm like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And um, <laughs> things that uh, people didn't get to and things that uh, I think even Ian and I uh, read some things that weren't really touched on, even though they did read your eloquent um, sort of pseudo essay that we uh, pu- published on our blog. Um, I just felt like really there was a lot more to say on who she is as a character. Um, and I know, Ian, you had said she's your favorite character in the film. I don't have a favorite character um, in Blade Runner 2049. My favorite character, I think, of both films are Rachel and it always will be. Um, even though Rachel's not really in 2049, even though she is sort of, um, that being said, um, I want to just kind of open it up and talk about, uh, the character. And, uh, I really haven't myself articulated my feelings for her, but before I do that, I'd like to pass it to Ricardo and uh, again, thank you for coming on the show and just kind of hear your kind of opening statements. How does this character resonate with you? Another prodigal serial number returns. A 30 year old open case finally closed. Thank you, officer. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. I'm love. Uh, well, I actually, I would love Ian to go first because you, he, as I totally agree with you, Jamie. That little essay that Ian shared with us—it's fantastic. You've been vetoed. And, sorry, uh, Ian. Ian, can I throw <laughs> it to you because then I will destroy your single point uh, each by each. So <laughs> I'm going to let you open up the 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 first salvo. Okay. Well, uh, in the first instance, it was never really intended to be a, an essay. It was just I was kind of trying to put my my own thoughts and feelings into words because I felt so bad at having to cut out at the last moment. And I just, I was trying to potentially fill any voids that might come up. You know, I don't know. I wasn't being egotistical in thinking that way. I just thought, well, you know, because I'm begging off at the last moment, it's unlikely they'd be able to come up with an extra guest. So if I throw in a couple of thoughts that they might be able to pitch about between themselves, if they don't cover those points themselves. Uh, and, I have this tendency to get a little bit flowery with words, I'm afraid. So as as these sort of very hurried notes over the dinner table took place, it kind of uh, grew. And then before I knew it, when I hit send, 
when I read back, I thought, that's not really what I sat down to write, but it, it does encapsulate my feelings for the character. I wouldn't say she's my favourite character. I would say that she is the one for whom I feel the most, if that makes sense. Um, you said, Jamie, that Rachel's not really in 2049, but for me, from the first moment I saw Love and heard her voice, she was, because there's kind of a, a very strong echo there. And I know that Sylvia Hook said that the intention was that they, she was, uh, if, if there's such a horrific word as japanifying her character, you should try to make her as Japanese as possible in the way she dressed, the way she walked, the way she wore her hair. But whether she realised that or not, or whether Dennis Gastner realised it, or any of the wardrobe people realised it, what they were actually doing was creating another Rachel. And that was the very first impression, and it was such a strong impression when I saw her. The the tiny little steps, and I know this was mentioned before by the other guys, but it was it, the the impact was so great. Here is you know, I mean, Mary Sean Young was just a, a, a remarkable performance in the first movie. And I think she stole my heart then and she still holds my heart now. Uh, and to see someone who, while she didn't look exactly like her, there were so many echoes of the character there that it, it, you know, I, immediately my head started whirling. Is this the product of some sort of genetic template? Is it deliberate? Well, how could it be deliberate? He's never, you know, Wallace has never met her. And it, that's why I really had to go back and see the movie again and then again, because by the time all these thoughts had gone through my head, I realised I've missed some interplay here. And when I went back the next time, and there was the, the the playful little coquettish, but still incredibly naive touches to the way that she interacted with Kay, who was the more replicant of the two, I actually started to wonder uh, when I picked it up in that towards the you know in the first seeing, is she a replicant? Do replicants behave like that? Can they behave like that? It was a really, it was quite a, it, it, the whole viewing had such a, an effect on me, but she more than anything else, she knocked me for six. I, my my thoughts were whirling around my head. I couldn't really piece together what her role was. And then the tear, you know, when the, when the, when the tear started, and I, I know I spoke in my notes about uh, my impression of her straight away, I related to her, I empathised with her this is a person who has been abused. This is a child. This is uh, somebody who has never known anything other than what, what he has put her through. You know, she's intended to be something and he's forced her into something else. Uh, and it was just the sort of monstrous abuse that she'd undergone. There is another aspect to her, which I'll, I'll come back to later on, but I, I know I'm conscious that I'm rambling. So um, really, more than any other character in the movie, she had me thinking constantly, why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? Uh, who is she? Uh, and to some extent, I'm, I'm still questioning that. Totally. And uh, I, I have some interesting points that I would like to kind of uh, discuss based off what you said, but I really want to toss it to you, Ricardo, and uh, hear your first impressions, and then we'll get into the larger discussion. Awesome. First, I wanted to say it's very unfair to be talking with Sean Connery, 
because you know the gravitas of that Scottish accent. It's it, it's not fair. Come on now, you just just do the American accent, please. Now, uh, for me, getting back to love, I think you guys try to see too much. Where, in my opinion, things are not there. I see love as this top-of-the-line pleasure model combat unit. She's a high-end manager in the biggest corporation of the world. She's capable of selling hundreds of replicants to a drill site, assault a police station, rain death on your head by a remote drone while she is having her nails done, and all this is before lunch. I don't see at all the vulnerability, the fragility, and the conflict that most of people see in her. Um, I don't think there's in, in the movie any clue that will support that assertion, and I know we have a detective with us, so I'll, I'll be interested in continuing that conversation. I understand when people look at her crying that they think that she's being abused, like Yun said, or conflicted, or uh, fragile. I think she's just pissed. She's just disappointed. Again, another setback for the Wallace Corporation, for particularly for the person that made her and it's her mentor. I think she's just frustrated. Again, we can't have a replicant that gives babies. We don't know how many times they already went through that, meaning that could be the 10th time, the 15th time. And I never saw any empathy from her to any replicant or even any human that will support the idea that she's feeling empathy with a newborn, with a newborn replicant. And I understand the thing that uh, the, the little eyes are circulating her. So Wallace is watching her. And actually on the, on the previous podcast, there was this great idea about this being her baseline test. I just think that Wallace is trying to see if she feels frustrated as he feels and if she's containing their emotions as he contains it and if she's dedicated to the cause. Is she ready to go looking for the, uh, the uh, replicant human child and if she's with him, if she's also pissed and upset that they are not breaking through? That was my feeling, because the rest of the movie, I never see any moment. And we all talk about the Joshi murder. So I'll, I'll stop for now, and I'll just throw it to you guys. What do you think about that? Well, um, to some of Ian's... Well, here's the thing. So I, when I first was introduced to love, um, even in the trailers... Um, I remember seeing her all in white, and when we first meet Rachel, she's all in black. There's a similar uh, haircut line to to Love that there is to Rachel. There's just her hair is kind of bunched up in the back in a similar fashion to Rachel, but Love is very much the antithesis of Rachel. At the same time, when Kay goes to the Wallace Corporation and he's finally met up, Love meets up with him, and she takes him down to the the data storage place, and after they've you know, they're both watching or and listening um, to the the audio from um, Deckard's Void Comp Test with Rachel. Love takes a moment and she says to him, it's nice being asked personal questions. It's, it makes one feel desire. And she looks at him and she says, do you enjoy your work, officer? And she really takes... She really takes. I have a great point. I'm sorry to interrupt you because I have a great point to counter that. But please continue. Okay. Um, 
she really, I really see empathy for her. And it could be all a scheme or a ploy. She's very smart, I would imagine. Um, I would imagine that uh, Wallace probably did make the best replicant he could make in love. She was made for a purpose. She was made to be his, his kind of, his, his hand, the hand of God in some ways. But there seemed to be a genuine, from what I could read, uh, attempt I'd love to connect with Kay and Kay blows her right off and you kind of see her in my opinion you see her react to that with disappointment like he's not interested he's not interested in connecting with her he's not interested in anything else and I think there there is a devastating quality about who love is and who she wants to be but I, I at the same time I I don't know it's one of those things where her motivations it's pure speculation whether whether there's any of her own motivation in what she's doing or if it's all Wallace or if there's a little bit of she wants to find the child for her own for her own means or what's really going on. But it's uh, she's I, I, I would agree. Like, I think that she is absolutely fascinating. He named you. Must be special. I'm here for Mr. Wallace. Follow me. The ancient models give the entire endeavor a bad name. What a gift, don't you think? From Mr. Wallace to the world? Sure. Can I just say, with regards to what uh, Ricardo said there, that's, well, I'm, I'm, I agree, it's not impossible, because uh, I said anything else, anything else, my specialty in, or where I found that I had a talent when I was a police officer and a, a detective officer, was in interviewing people, whether they were uh, victims, but also suspects. I never left, or I think I only once left an interview room with a, a, a suspect who continued to say nothing to me. Uh, mostly everyone else, I was able to break them down in one way or another. And one of the methods I employed for that was kinesics. Kinesics is the study of everything about a person. It's not just body language. Body language is a cheap catch-all. Uh, you're talking about micromomentaries. And interestingly, one of the first things that you do when you're doing a kinesic interview is you set a baseline in your interrogation. You look for markers uh, and you spend quite, you spend as long as it takes uh, to do that. You look for what in poker terms you would call tells and the tells of different emotions, whether it's sadness, whether it's resignation. And these are things that we cannot hold back, even in, no matter how much we school our faces. The greatest actors in the world cannot hold these things back because they show through in micromomentaries. Uh, she has very strong micromomentaries, and this is something that I feel that this, this is a woman who, uh, the actress, Sylvia Hooks, has obviously spent some time either in this role or previously working with people who have either been victims of, well, victims of some form of abuse. To successfully uh, reproduce micromomentaries on her face, and she does, because I've noticed them time and again, uh, in the way that she does flawlessly, uh, you know, to, it takes a lot of training to spot micromomentaries in the first place and you know, to catalogue them faithfully during an interview. So to reproduce them flawlessly the way she does takes a lot of work. And I, I would love to get inside her head because... Personally, I don't think that she would put in, invest that, all that work with these micro-momentaries of 
and it's, it's not just rage, because when we are enraged, we, we act in certain ways. Uh, when, when children, I've sat across the tables in, from enough people who have been trying to hold back tears of rage, which are very specific. Uh, I myself have shed or, or tried to hold back tears of rage in my life, and I, and I know how a, a person behaves under those circumstances. Uh, and almost all of us do the same, regardless of, you know, in Western culture, regardless of how we are raised, simply because uh, we were all kids once and kids behave in, in, in catalogable fashions. Um, her res responses there struck a nerve with me specifically because they are perfect reproductions of somebody who has been either subject to abuse physically, subject to abuse emotionally, uh, somebody who has been around violence and who I don't see it as anger. I don't see it as, uh, I don't even see it as fear. I see it as terror and it's a terror of failure. It's a terror of not being the best. It's not terror of death. She doesn't see herself as a human being. I don't even think she sees herself as a woman other than as a means to an end. If she does see herself as a woman, she's only in the very earliest stages of that. She's only just starting to, to, to discover who she is. And possibly she understands the impact that her beauty can have on somebody. If so, I think it's wasted on, on Kay. She wouldn't make that approach to Kay in order to get her hooks into him because he's beneath her. He's a dog who's been loose in a scent. She is, as you said, she is the perfect replicant. She is Wallace's right hand. She sits at, 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 next to the throne of God himself, as far as she is concerned. Who is he? Why would she even begin to look at him that way unless there was a nascent spark of emotion in her? Now, Ricardo, you attribute emotions to her there having poo-pooed the possibility of other emotions existing. You can't have one without the other. But whatever else for me Blade Runner is, Blade Runner the original or Blade Runner 2049 is, it is a subjective experience. And we bring to the table something that we have experienced on a uniquely personal level. Uh, so you see one thing, I see another. That's because of the fact that we're different people. It's not to say that I'm right and you're wrong. As I say, uh, there is the possibility that her tears are of rage. I just see them differently, and I've, I like to think I've given my reasons. Absolutely, and this is all great points. And I, I, as you said, and very correctly, just we're just seeing things from a different perspective. And I think the discussion it's it's is stimulating. Now, Jamie, regarding what you said, and and Ian touched about it also. Uh, I do concede that she looks childish sometimes, but I think that maybe that's on purpose. Maybe Wallace made it that way, or she developed that to have an advantage over people. Remember when she kills Coco, the way that she's so nonchalant and, oh, I have the papers right here. In her mind, she's thinking, I'm going to kill him this way. It's going to be fast. It's going to be painful. And then I'm going to put the bones. I'm going to go away. And in the seduction scene at the storage unit, I think she's not flirting with Kay. She's just trying to see what she can get from him, what kind of information she can extract what is this official investigation? He doesn't tell her anything. She's like, oh, everybody sleeps well when they know about this old numbers. I think that she's just trying to 
use her sex appeal, use her um, her position also as a, as a female replicant, and try to get him to say more, to, to have that moment of fascination and maybe just blurt something out. Because on the other hand, we never see her dealing with Kay in that way. And even the kiss at the end of the fight, it's again a kiss of rage. It's a kiss, and you guys discussed that on the leg, well, not us, but the other the other team. We discussed it on the old pod, the other podcast, and that is, I am the best one. You know now that I'm the best one. So I, I never saw her being attracted to Kay. So that's the point that I wanted to make regarding that. Don't get me wrong. I, actually, I don't think that she was flirting with him. What I think was a moment of, for lack of better terms, humanity, where really what I see is two slaves having a moment, realizing he even says, he named you. You must be special. They know what they are. They know they're servants to man. Um, for me, that moment was about two created things um, in the minds of the people who created them, not humans, having a moment of connection. And she wanted a moment of connection just to connect to him as a fellow replicant. But Kay wasn't buying it. Kay wasn't, I think Kay knew that, but he wasn't interested in that. He's kind of, he he's very instinctual. I mean, he has a job and he's doing it, uh, much like Deckard in the original. Um, so I don't think, I don't think in my, my perspective of that scene, I don't think it has anything to do with sex. For me, it wasn't about sex appeal or flirtation. It was just this moment of humanity, like that moment that we might have when, say, like, I, you know, I've traveled all over the world. And I remember when I was in Versailles and uh, uh, in France and I'm walking with friends and I hear someone else talking and they have an American accent. And like, you're like, oh, hey, where are you from? I'm from here. It's just one of those moments, um, and again, I don't think Kay was there for that. I don't think Kay, at that point in his journey, um, was even engineered to to pivot away from his 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 orders, which are find this and get rid of it. Um, so that's my perspective on on love. But before we continue, I want to kind of run back to something that. Uh, you touched upon, or we kind of talked about, uh, Ian, briefly in terms of Rachel. And I know I mentioned that I think that um, love is a the antithesis of Rachel. Um, but I would say that, to your point, Ian, I, I think that Rachel it echoes throughout the film as well. I think her character, the character of Rachel, is as, as powerful and is as, as present in 2049 as she was in 2019. Um, no doubt about it. Like from the moment that film begins, 2049, I'm thinking about Rachel. I hear her voice. I see her. I mean, it's, she's just this ghost that's haunting. And there's a little bit of that ghost in love. Um, but uh, unlike Rachel, love knows who she is. So she's very different. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I, I, I completely agree with you there. Um, if I could just say, you know, Still with this flirtation bit as well. It's not. I agree with you. It's not that she has a, an attraction to him per se. It's. I think it's that she's st starting to develop in and of herself, which replicants were designed to do. You know, this batch of replicants have been designed to, to do. Uh, the old batch were faulty when they had all these uh, things go wrong with them. They developed emotions. These replicants, to an extent, have have been developed to for specific qualities, not so much emotional qualities, but uh, loyalty is a very strong 
emotion there. Uh, but when it comes to Kay, she had no reason to use her womanly wiles on him or try to get him to spill her beans because from the moment she heard the tone in his pocket, she knew that she knew all about him or could find out all about him. You like our product. She made the comment herself. She picked up on the fact, aha. And you know, that's me thinking as a detective, looking at it logically, watching it back. That's That would not be there if it was not a significant line, if it wasn't a significant point. She picks up on the fact that I can monitor you. And later on, Joy understands that and warns him of that. But I'm getting ahead of myself here now, uh, coming back to, to that moment. She is smart enough, you know, uh, I think that she would be at least an A-class intellectually as well on, on the old categorization. Uh, she is smart enough to know at that point, good doggy, I now have your leash. Uh, if I can go back just a little bit, Jamie, and that is, I think Kay sees to the deception. That's why he completely blows her off. She's like, I see what you're doing here, young lady. You're trying to... Uh, you're trying to seduce me. Again, if you guys don't agree with that, that's fine. But I think Kay sees that. And he, 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 he totally gives up the image that I'm here for, for a work and I'm not going to discuss that work with you. So I think that the way that Kay rejects her, it's just so that she knows, he knows what she's trying to do. That was the way I saw that, that scene. I would agree with you. I think that she does... Um, I think he sees through her. I don't know if it was a sexy thing, but I think he sees through whatever she's trying to do, trying to kind of soften him up and maybe create a moment of connection, even though that's not what she's about. She's not about connection. She's about carrying out the will of God in, in her own way. Um, so I would agree. Maybe not with the sex, sex appeal part, but certainly Kay sees through that moment. I would say yes to an extent, but there's also with him, there's an extent of uh, his baseline is set a lot flatter than hers. Uh, she has many other tasks to do. Essentially, his task is killing. And I know that she kills as well, but that's that's something that she has been allowed rather than uh, possibly trained for. Uh, whereas his specific purpose is hunt and kill, hunt and kill. That's all he does. That's all he knows. She is something different. She, this is a woman who interacts with Mr. Wallace's clients on a personal basis. She has to be able to be witty, to be urbane, to be charming, to be whatever the situation calls for. Not him. He is socially awkward. Look at him with Joshi. Joshi is his friend. There might be some sort of attraction there, you know, uh, but you know, Joshi is loyal to him and to an extent, he's loyal to her, but that loyalty still doesn't go, you know, as as to me as deep as Joshi's loyalty to him does. I, I know I'm talking about him now, but I'm trying to talk about Kay in comparison to her and how she responds in that scene, how he responds to her in that scene. I see in him, yes, there to an extent. There's a, a detective built into him, which is saying, why are you asking this? And there is a pause where you see him consider. But then there's just the fact that even if he wanted to, he couldn't flirt with her. He couldn't chat back to her because it's not what he designed for. She likes him. Who? Oh. This Officer Deckard. She's trying to provoke him. 
It is invigorating being asked personal questions. Makes one feel desire. Good. There's there's a hole in my theory, and as you know, every good detective needs to to see every uh, every lane of it. She does say to Yoshi that she likes him. There is that moment when she, op she op when she enters her, her Yoshi's office. She's like, "I like him. He's a good boy," but even the good boy thing just really bugs me because she's. And Ian mentioned this already. She's superior to him. She's like, "Oh, he's a good boy." And then, of course, later she calls him a bad dog. And and that moment, I think again, she's just um, venting her um, or her anger, her violence. No, I, 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 again, I would disagree with that. I, I think that uh, she sees herself as superior to him in the same way, same way that I see myself as superior to my dog. Uh, you know, <laughs> although I think I, I have probably have more affection for my dog than, than she has for him. Uh, she, he cannot be better than her. The possibility does not enter her mind because from day one, my bet is that when she was birthed, Wallace was there to meet her. She's a special project. She's his right-hand woman. He would have imprinted upon her. And uh, there's no need for him to, to, to check her. This is something that we, we considered in the, in the Wallace podcast, and I don't want to touch on that too much, but these, the, the barracuda, whatever you like to call them, but you know, I know that on set they call them the barracuda, the, the, the things that he, he employs to, to see, one of them is scanning her as, uh, as he's speaking, as he's doing this to the, the replicant. And, the, you know, this awful, appalling act, which he doesn't even consider. To him, it's not cruel, it's not anger, it's just something that, well, you know, it's like swatting a fly, uh, only I think he thinks even less of it than that. But one of those is scanning her, and that has just seen inside that replicant. It's seen into her on a cellular level. And one of those is scanning her. That wouldn't just be to see, you know, are you okay? Are you on board with this? He doesn't care. If she wasn't on board, that she wouldn't be there. Um, she is his from the second she was born to the second she dies. Um, the, the loyalty is absolute in that woman, uh, and, and she is—I I do see her as a, as a woman rather than as a, a, as something, some you know, a replicant, some artificial created creature. Uh, she is a woman, but as I keep coming back to, she's a woman who has been—she's a child who has been abused. If if there's if that tear is a tear of empathy, it's a tear of sorrow. I don't think Wallace would react that way. I, 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 I'm quite sure that. The creator will look at her creation and say, you are not the best angel of them all. You just had a moment of weakness. And I saw that moment of weakness. And I never, th I don't think that Wallace would ever forgive that on love. That's, that's my take on it. No, I, I don't say it was a tear of empathy. I, I, I personally don't believe that. I believe, as I said to you, that it's not a tear of fear. Uh, as I say, uh, uh, <laughs> She recreates micro momentaries prior to that perfectly. I mean, watch her eye. How hard is it for somebody to isolate a twitch in the lower uh, right hand lid, you know, the, of of their eye? You know, she isolates musculature there that is all but impossible to replicate. She successfully does that, and that is a tell 
in the kind of interviews that I used to do for somebody who is truthfully experiencing something and f for her that experience it, it's it's not empathy she doesn't she is she doesn't care about that creature that's just been gutted she I say she is his from the moment she's created she's not feeling sorry for that woman she's feeling sorry for herself she is feeling terror and whether it's terror of failure whether it's terror of consequences I think that if he was to hand her the scalpel and he was and he was to say to her open yourself that she would have done it she would not hesitate she would do it just as surely as the the uh, nexus did in nexus dawn she would do exactly the same thing she would probably do it faster there'd be no hesitation because she is his it's terror and it's terror of failure that's what drives her as being the best when he walks away at the end and he says you know you're still the best angel that is all the praise, all the drive, that's everything that she needs. That is the bonding of a master with their dog. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I don't know if, in my perspective, of course, if I see it as terror, because here I, I kind of want to I back up and think about her creation and Wallace taking the time to create this amazing replicant. And he's going to make sure that all of her protocols are in place. And she's doing things because she's supposed to, because she's engineered to. So I don't know if she would experience terror, um, because I don't know if that would even be a part of her engineering. I mean, it could be. Who knows? Again, this is all speculation. However, I do want to note that she could have killed Kay on two separate occasions, and she didn't. She killed humans without thought. She did not kill her fellow replicant. There was some type of... And the... the um, I mean, of course, when she was killing Joshi, um, there was the emotion and the tear, but it was also in context, and I know that this was discussed before, but it was in the context of discussing a possible replicant that could revolutionize the world, and that's when that tear came. And so she's been able to kill all of these, these humans that I think, and, you can, and you, we know because she called Joshi a tiny thing. She knows that she's superior than to, to Joshi and to humans. She... That's why she can kill him indiscriminately. And I think that's why um, Wallace made her. And I don't think it's on an accident that she's a woman. Um, I think women can, um, we can uh, be a little bit more emotionally open. We can be a little bit more emotionally available to women. Um, we can assume that, oh, it's a woman, so she's not as strong. Um, so she can kind of get in, get access to things that a man wouldn't be able to be in some ways, because men, men tend to be a little bit more intimidating. Um, his making her a woman was very specific, in my opinion. Um, but I think that there is a soft spot for her, for her fellow replicants. Too dark in here. Ricardo, do you mind if I just step in there quickly? Um, sure, go ahead. The second time in Joshi's office, that's not a tear of terror. The first one is a tear of terror. But if you watch, there's no eye twitch before the, the, the tear is shed in, in Joshi's office. That's rage. Joshi has done something which has set her master back as far as she is concerned. Joshi has ordered the, the, the death and has just told her, 
the child is dead. Now, she at that, at that time, she doesn't know otherwise. She's got to find out for herself, but she doesn't know otherwise. Uh, that's rage. And the way she bares her teeth as she comes in and snarls, you know, she doesn't break down sobbing uh, in, in terror and or she doesn't start shaking, she doesn't start trembling when she's in Wallace's presence. I, I do think that's her baseline, and I think part of her baseline is you will do anything for me. You fear failing me. And the terror that I'm speaking about there is terror of failure. It, for her, that could have been the point where he just hands her the scalpel and says, end yourself. She would have done it, not because she's scared of losing her life, you know, because this is her master who created her and she'll do anything for him. She, Her biggest failure is of, her biggest fear, rather, is of failing him. Uh, the, the Joshi incident is completely, her behaviour there is completely different. There you see the psychotic child come out in her, the, the, the rage, the monster that lurks just beneath that beautiful surface. This is fantastic. I love it. Uh, Ian, I, I totally agree with you with the Joshi part because I totally agree that she's just mad and she's frustrated again. And I see her like that most of the movie. And the way that she kills uh, Yoshi with maximum pain and, and the way that treats, she, she treats the corpse after that, the way she raises her head and then just drops it, it just shows that she has no sorrow, no respect, or even any regret for what she'd done. Now, regarding, if, if I may, Jamie, just linger here a little more, I would like Ian to explain a little better the terror, because the terror of failing, and that is because why do you think it's her fault that the 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 replicants are not the the women the female replicants are not coming with babies? We don't know that. I don't think that has anything to do in this particular scene because it's not her fault. We don't know that it's her fault. Uh, she's the one who announces to him, you know, she's ready or you know she's ready for you to. What is she? I can't remember exact words. Uh, She's ready for you to see something along those lines. I know that she, she obviously she's not as crass as that because you can't see uh, conventionally, at least. She so says, you, do you want to see the new model? That's it, and yes. And see her then, and then you see the yes. eyes there. Yes. Um, it, it's, it, it's, unless, she, unless she, she's played that wrong or unless I've just, I'm just investing too much of my... And I'm not, I'm, again, I'm not willing to sit here and say I am absolutely right. Uh, unless I'm investing too much of my past in and my own empathy in uh, her performance there and, as I say, the micro-momentaries that she delivers, it's just they are so specific that they cannot have been otherwise than rehearsed and rehearsed meticulously. And if somebody was going to teach her micro-momentaries, then they would have taught her the right ones. If you, if you, if you take my meaning... There are specifics yes. to to each emotion that we feel, each emotion that we try to mask. No matter how successful we are at masking everything else, these tiny and they're called micro moments for a reason. They are there and they are gone. They're flickers, twitches beneath the surface that we cannot hold back. Uh, the involuntary dilation of the iris being one of them. So. You know, there are specific signals that, that we send out. And that's why sometimes when we meet somebody for the first time, we either know, I don't like you or I do like you. Yeah, I think you're the kind of person I could get to to, to be friends with. You know, we know it on an inst what we think is an instinctive level. And it is an instinct. It's an instinct that goes back to the days of, 
you know, I live in a cave. You're going to try and take my woman from me, you know, or, or you're going to try and take my man from me. I'm going to stop you from doing that. You know, it, it is the animal in us telling us things about one another. And sitting there as somebody who has, as I say, I spent enough time across the, the desk from people who are trying to conceal emotions. All I see in that room there is fear. And I don't see it as being fear of him. She loves him. She adores him. And, and, and in fact, Sylvia Hooks has spoken about that, the complex dynamic about, you know, that there came about between the two of them, that she will do anything for him. She is desperate to do anything for him. She never once mentions that she's scared of him, you know, in all these little junkets that she did. Not once in, in the interviews that I've seen, certainly, has she ever mentioned fearing him. She's mentioned the complex dynamics and uh, that uh, the, the complex relationship. That, 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 but she, she's spoken of the distance as well. But she's said repeatedly she will do anything for him. And the way she kills Coco, I don't see it as being incredibly painful. She she didn't care for his suffering. He was nothing to her. He was in her way, as you said. Joshi was in her way, but Joshi had gone against her master. And pardon my French, but that pissed her off. Joshi had done something quite willful and wanton and likely against Joshi's own orders. Because when she walks into that office, Joshi knows who she is. She doesn't say, who the hell are you? Get at my office. Joshi knows exactly who she is. And in fact, Joshi knows there's not even any point in me calling for help. This woman has more authority than me here. Because believe me, otherwise, as a cop, you know, cops think, uh, uh, come back to the first movie, if you're not cops, you're little people. The little person in that room is Joshi. Now, she doesn't just kill Joshi. She tortures her beforehand. She crushes her hand. She does chosen to do all sorts of other things. She crushes her hand. She grinds glass and alcohol in there. Where she struck Coco a horrific blow and then stood uncaring, unthinking, forgetting about him as soon as he fell while he died in appalling circumstances, she wants to hurt Joshi as much as possible there. She's reveling in the fact, you know, the, the whole head coming forward, baring the teeth, that's a predator attacking. That's that's a wolf attacking a sheep there. And you know, in that moment, you, as I say, you see love for who she is. I don't see her as being some sort of weak, frail, oh, look at me, you should, you should all feel sorry for me because a tear's falling down my cheek. But yeah, I do feel sorry for her because she is a child. And, you know, regardless of the, the outer appearance, she's a child who has been programmed to do terrible things and who's then been made to go beyond that. And I think the parts, that's one of the reasons that he's scanning her is that he is constantly pushing her, constantly pushing to her to see just how far she will go. Now, when it comes to Kay, she drops Kay. He's down. He's less than her. So she's able to turn away from him. He's like her. He's a replicant. He has his programming. So therefore, he will either die, and I believe that she thinks he is going to die on the floor there. And as with Coco, she doesn't care about the fact that he's going to die. He's served his purpose. She's gone. But first of all, she hurts him as much as she possibly can by crushing, quite deliberately, Joy, the the, the only creature he can have uh, a relationship with, the one that he, he dismissed her for, 
I don't see that as being petulance on her part or spite. I see it as being like, you know, you went against your programming, you went against your master, my master, bang, I'm going to hurt you. Exactly the same as she did to, to Joshi. Uh, but as soon as he goes down, he's going to die as far as she's concerned. And he likely would have had he not been found. But uh, once she turns away from him, she forgets about him. You tiny thing. I find it interesting that um, the way, uh, well, the way that love kills humans is indiscriminate. It's like you're nothing with Joshi, with, with Coco, and even the way Kay, I mean, certainly with, he killed, you know, his job is to retire replicants, um, but he didn't have any problem beating up um, the character at the orphanage. Um, but what I see in, in love is the same kind of lack of, for lack of better terms, humanity, the way Deckard killed Zora um, in the original is the same way love looks at humans as they're not human. We're better than them. They're nothing. And I think it's a great kind of flipping of the scales or turning of the, uh, a flipping of the script in some ways where you have these replicants who are now in position. And even Mariette says it later on in the church basement or whatever, uh, we are more human than humans. They now believe they are superior. And we see them acting that way. We see them killing humans that way. And it's very interesting to see, um, you know, one of the great things about uh, you know, there's a comparison between Love and Roy Batty, but there's a major discrepancy between the two, whereas Roy Batty really understood what it meant to live, which is what um, had him keep, uh, save Deckard's life, whereas with Love, she doesn't care. They are the new, the fabulous new, as she called it. It's just a very, it's a very interesting um, thing that I notice um, while I watch these films over and over, is the kind of that flipping of the script. That's a, That's a great point. It's yeah. a great point, Jamie. Hi, this is Tony, the host of the Flix X Raid podcast. Each week, I am joined by guests. Meow. Hello. Yo. Why, hello there. Hello. And we have a roundtable discussion where we ray a bunch of our favorite films and some really terrible ones. If you want, you can follow us on all the major platforms. To find out more, you can find us online at www.flixxray.com. And you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you want to reach out to us. Good night, Internet. Uh, I, I was just going to say one last thing about what she does with Kay that she doesn't do with anybody else is she beats him. That's what you do with a dog that doesn't obey its orders as far as she's concerned. You know, some particularly brutal owners will do that. If you have a hound and it's bred for hunting, you don't keep it in the house. You have to keep it outside because it's bred for a specific purpose. You don't pet that dog. You don't stroke that dog. You don't feed that dog treats. You make that dog fear you, and if that dog bites you, then you beat that dog. That's the thinking of these sorts of people, and that's her thinking there. She beats him into the ground. It's not sadistic. It's a lesson before she leaves him to die. And I say, when she turns from him at that point, as far as she's concerned, that's it. He's gone. He's beneath her. He is dust. 
I'd like to piggyback on something that Ian said, and it wasn't touched in the last podcast about about love. It's that's ex exactly when she steps on the emanator. Her, the look on her face—it just—it's pure sadism. She's so happy on what she's about to do, and then she has the final blow. I hope you like our product. Oh my gosh, it's this kind of pattern I see on love during the entire movie. And this one is going to kill your, it's going to uh, break your heart, Jamie, and I'm terribly sorry. But the way that she kills Rachel 2.0, it's again, uh, for me, uh, the pure distillation of what is love, what is love's character in, in this movie. She's just do, uh, like Ian said it so many times and so well, she she just wants to please her creator and her um, uh, her master, her uh, mentor. So the moment that uh, Wallace makes that little, you know, little nod in her with her with his head, she just pulls out the gun and boom. So again, I don't see that lack of empathy on those moments. I don't see that empathy with the newborn replicant. And I'm not talking about what you. We're talking about Ian. I'm just talking now on general when people look at love on that particular scene, because I don't that I don't see that empathy uh, on her. And there's this very, uh, in my opinion, very important moment when she's when we first see her. She's trying to sell sell sorry, she's trying to sell uh, replicants to a drilling site, and her expression and I got this verbatim because I didn't want to get it wrong. She says. Um, your operation is strictly a drill site, isn't it? I wouldn't waste your money on intelligence, attachment, or appeal. So again, she, uh, Jamie, what you just said now, it's a tremendous point, and that is the replicants are now the master race. I think love sees herself even above that master race. She, she's the link between God and the master race that is going to take over. Could I step in there just for a second, Jimmy? Uh, I, I know sure. that this is something I know this is something you feel very strongly about. You know, having discussed it with you previously, but uh, I, something that I mentioned earlier uh, on uh, in my group when we were discussing love, and uh, I mentioned the fact that a particularly appalling characteristic of uh, slavers of old and slave owners was that they would raise specific slaves up above other slaves and they would give them tastes of a better life. And in return, those slaves were expected to be overseers. And all too often, those slaves who no longer wore chains, as uh, some of the other slaves might, uh, could be more, more cruel and more sadistic and thought more of themselves than they thought of their fellows. And the reason for that was because they had now tasted of a luxury and they didn't want to go back to being what they had been. And I see her as an overseer. I see her as being this cruel, callous, and yet at the same time, the the the, the cruelty comes out at specific points. But the, there's a callousness to the way that she that I, I see her relating to other replicants and him in particular. As I say, he he's flawed. He's strayed away from his purpose. It's all the beating that she gives him. It's almost like how dare you. I'm going to teach you. Uh, and I see her specifically as 
and, and the way she sees herself as well as an overseer. I think the, my, I personally agree with you wholeheartedly there, Ricardo, is that she sees herself as being better than these other applicants. I would also agree with that uh, that assertion. Um, I think it's it's interesting, and I think about what these characters are with with Kay and with Love, and I think about uh, during World War II, um, during the the SS occupation of Germany and of Poland and of all of these places they were. And they, there was a lot of dirty work. And what was really insidious about some of the dirty work that had needed to be done, instead of having the Germans or the Aryan people or whoever do um, certain things, they hired, not hired, they tasked other Jews to, to do these things that they didn't want to do. And much like in 2049, um, specifically 2049, you have replicants killing other replicants. Um, so there's no even, well, they're killing each other, who cares? They're not human, whatever. Um, and I, it's very, it's, it's, it's a very, we, it's a, it's a very interesting decision that the writers made to have this, um, I mean, of course, there's the, there's the internal uh, discussion which I'm bored of now, which is whether is Deckard a replicant or is he a replicant, and if he is a replicant, was he killing other of his kind? <laughs> I don't give a shit anymore. I don't think it, ma it doesn't matter if if Deckard is a replicant or not. However, my my point is is that they, the society, whatever society, whoever whoever the government is, whatever is going on, they have tasked replicants that were engineered to kill other replicants. That is horrific. It is absolutely horrific. So they're tasking these non-people with killing other non-people. They don't see any of them as people. They're not, I mean, they, I don't even know if they see them as sentient. Um, they don't care. Um, and what's interesting about, again, to kind of go back to love, the horror about what love is doing is she doesn't see people as people either. We've made this, this thing that also does not see humanity in other people. She doesn't even, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't respect human life. I don't. She. I don't even know if she respects replicant life. She is indiscriminate. She kills. That's what she does. And that is, it's it's almost the worst parts of who we are, of what we can be as humans, blossomed in her, so that she does it, so we don't have to. In the face of the fabulous new, your only thought is to kill it, <sighs> for fear of great change. You can't hold the tide with a broom. I wouldn't say it's all that she does. As I said, you know, this is somebody who... Agreed, is, is, agreed. But uh, you know, it, it is a big part. And I think, you know, going back to, to those ramblings of mine that, that I, I set down in, in writing, uh, I think there I said, I described her as being uh, a particular distillation of Roy. She's the distillation of the the, the killer in him. Uh, you know, she she is filled with this rage at whatever, but I think that that has been programmed into her. The, she would not be in Joshi's office feeling that rage. She would not be behaving in that way. Uh, I, 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 one thing I have to say here is I, I find it almost charming of her, the fact that she, when she says, I'll, I'll just tell Mr. Wallace that, you know, as if Wallace wouldn't know and see through her, as if he can't see into her and know every single thing about her. He planned her on a cellular level, as far as I'm concerned. You know, she is his creature. Uh, and so for her to, that, that's particularly childish. And that, 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 to me, more than anything else, showed 
her naivety, the fact that she thought that, well, I can lie to him and, and he won't pick up on it. Uh, you know, I'll just tell him this and he'll accept it. He would accept it because she wouldn't be set out there into the police station if he didn't. This, this, to me, you know, he's like the ultimate chess player. He'd be sitting there thinking, OK, what are the possibilities of me sending her in here? Half the time he seems to know things that are happening in the, the story even before she does, you know, the, the few times that we do meet him. He's aware of things that even she doesn't uh, know or, or is aware of. And he's cloistered away there in the centre of, of his uh, his monolith. Um, you know, she is his go-to girl. She's the woman who represents him before the world, who you would expect information to flow through. And yet he's telling her things. And so for her to say there, oh, I'll, I'll just lie to him, you know, I'll, I'll get away with it. She would get away with it as long as she delivered. But I, I just found it really oddly, appallingly charming that she thought she could get away with it. What's interesting, too, about what she said to Joshi is almost a lot like what a child will say to other children or siblings. I'm going to tell mom you did this. Like, I'm going to get you in trouble. I'm going to say that, I, you know, it's very childlike. It's very... Um, it's, it's something that a child would say. I, th I don't know. We don't know how old or how long love has been in the world. We don't know. We don't. We know very little about her. If she, you know, her incept date, how how long she's supposed to live. I would bet money that she doesn't have an expiration date. That she will live on as long as you know Wallace finds her useful. Um, but I would agree. I think that she has been planned from a cellular level. Um, nothing about her is an accident. Nothing about her is is uh, is a mistake. I think she is was designed and fashioned and wants what she wants and dresses the way she dresses to kind of craft a persona that get things done. Um, and she did, and she got things done. Um, one thing I wanted to mention that I, I didn't feel like was mentioned in uh, the the part one of this with the other group um, is the kiss that she gives. And, and again, I'll, I'll kind of moved into the, uh, a biblical analogy. When Judas goes into the garden and right before he essentially kills Jesus by betraying him, he kisses him. And every time you see that in Blade Runner, there's this kiss before dying. I mean, it's whether it's with Roy and Tyrell and then, um, essentially God himself, uh, Neander kissing the, the newborn replicant or, um, then love kissing Kay. It's right before death. It's this kiss of death, which is, and I just, again, I, I think that there's a lot of biblical parallels that we'll get into, uh, in a, in another separate discussion. But I, I, I just, again, love is a very powerful, she is, she is just she is is an angel. She is absolutely an angel. And angels did horrible things in God's name. God tasked angels in the Bible doing things that God did himself did not want to do. And that is exactly who love is in some ways. Absolutely. And and he could do that because they they had no soul or free will. They were his creations, uh, born of his infinite love and light uh, from a biblical point of view. But they had no soul or free will. Only man was supposed to have that. Um, I see the kiss as particularly gladiatorial. Uh, again, it's, it's something that, from at least some of the writings that, that uh, existed from, uh, sorry, uh, survived from Roman times, 
that you know in the pit in combat in the in the Colosseum in combat it was not an unusual thing to for friends almost or people of, of a, a similar background when they when they're fighting the, the the kiss before dying that that saying comes from that sort of uh, culture where it was a celebration of you know I'm alive you are not and it was all the fierce passions that come out of that moment is that you know uh, I have won I am alive the, people say that you are you never feel so alive as you do when you almost die and and I can attest to that you know I my life has flashed before my eyes on several occasions during my career uh, in certain circumstances and the sheer jolt of adrenaline that hits you there is like like nothing else I, I i can't even find words to describe it unless you've been in that situation yourself i don't think you could but it, it is as with the stabbing side of things it is an almost sexual feeling it's a just this rush i am breathing i am drawing breath and you know what you're not. Now, for her, there's a savage exultation there. The kiss is like, have that, you know, and then, now have this stab, you know, as, as she puts the knife in. Sorry, I'm taking that back to my, my Scottish roots here, uh, maybe getting a little bit Glaswegian for you there. Uh, I, I'm not from Glasgow, but however, Glaswegian people have a, do have a, a reputation uh, in Scotland for being uh, quite, um, quite violent, even amongst the violent uh, Celtic culture. So, you know, there is this kind of like, uh, I've won, you haven't. And, and that, that's why I see the kiss coming from, is, uh, say, the, the kiss before dying. You know, uh, she is sealing his death with that kiss. I do quite like the, the whole uh, Judas side of things as well, though. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to give that some thought, Jim. Can, can I add something here, Jamie? And that sure. is, uh, again... I think that's the, uh, let's get back to the Joshi scene when she said, I'm going to tell Mr. Wallace that you try to kill me first. The, fir the thing that she says before that is that you believe, well, she's talking with Joshi, you believe him because we can't lie. So what is she doing? She's doing a final blow before she kills her. She's doing a final mental blow of saying, as you can see, we can lie. Because I'm telling you that I can lie. So he lied to you too. And you're going to die knowing that. So again, the sadism and sociopathy of love just comes, keeps bubbling up for me uh, as I see her in the movie. I know that I'm, I'm, I'm reinforcing that a lot, but that's why I like her, actually. She feels emotion. You know, the, the, when she steps forward there and she slams her foot down on, on, on the, the emanator, and when she crushes Joy, you know, what she says to him beforehand, when she says that to, to Joshi beforehand, and again, you're very astute there, Ricardo, what you, what you say, is it, it, that is her sticking the knife in even before she sticks the knife in is you know i want the last seconds of your life to be considering you know this creature whom i have protected and whom i've been loyal to was disloyal to me i Great don't point. know whether i don't know whether she actually knows that herself at that time that, that, that he has been completely disloyal um it's a, it, I, we we don't know just how much she she knows through the emanator, whether it's you know like uh, listening to everything or whether it's just tracking or, or whatever else. Um, but I, I would like to think that if if it was listening to everything, then she wouldn't even need to you know, 
you know, she would have known exactly where he was uh, in, in Vegas the whole time. She wouldn't need to go look for for Joshi that way. Um, oh no, sorry, I'm getting, I'm forgetting myself there. He he'd destroyed the the link. My my, my apologies. Yeah, so. Um, Sorry, I've, I've thrown myself off a little bit there. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, I, I think that, uh, I, I think that she really does like to twist the knife, and children do that. Is you know, children talk on the playground, and here's uh, it's an interesting thing as well. But when you deal with people who uh, can be remarkably childish, and many criminals have had, you know, the, the the worst kind of criminals have had a really abusive background and upbringing. It's something that it took me some time to learn when when I first became a police officer. You know, initially I thought, yeah, sport, let's lock up the bad guys, beat their skulls in, and you know, I didn't really think that way, honestly, honestly, Ricardo. <laughs> but uh, it took me some time to to realise that you know, a, a lot the uh, people do what they do for a reason. She does what she does for a reason, and that reason is that she's been bred to do it. She's been engineered to do it. She's been programmed to do it. She's been tutored to do it. I mean, uh, my bet would be that you know, he has, uh, he, uh, so Wallace, he created her programming uh, himself. He will have overseen that. And uh, she, everything that she does, whether she's aware of it or not, is because he wants her to. And this capacity for violence that's in her is there because he put it there. Uh, uh, it's like you know the whole thing about you know Lucifer and the fall. Uh, Lucifer fell from from heaven because God allowed him to. Even even biblical scholars you know, will accept that if you, if you pin them down hard enough. Fundamentalists they'll argue for the blue in the face. Biblical scholars will accept that in order for there to be uh, you know true free will, then man had to be exposed to sin. In order for there to be exposed to sin, there had to be an agent of sin. Everything that's in her was instilled in her by her creator. Everything. The best angel of all. Aren't you, love? Uh, and I would like to think even the, 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 the childish aspect of her it was, it was instilled in her by him for a particular reason. Maybe, maybe he just enjoys... You know, uh, you know. In fact, no, I don't, I don't even think he he enjoys having somebody around who he can imprint on. I think it's just the fact that she serves a purpose, and that's enough for him. He's not a guy. He's not looking for conversation for people to hold his hand, and she's not there for that purpose. She's not going to be sitting discussing her, the the latest book that she's read with him. Uh, but everything about her comes from him. And I just want to make a point to, about the childishness. Like, and I keep thinking about um, what we see, what we see her do. And in many ways, uh, there's that German word schadenfreude. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I probably am not. Um, where she... Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Um, where you can see... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's the way you say it. Um, but whatever the, word, whatever the case, you can see it on her face when she's... She's like, like when kids are on a playground and they're like, ha ha, you see it. She does it. When she smashes Joy's emanator, you see, like, you know, we've discussed, uh, there's this sense of, look what I'm doing. She's very much a four-year-old girl on a playground who has no emotional maturity. Um, she wants to be the best one. Like, we all want to be our parents' favorite or we all want to love our parents the most um, when we're kids. 
Um, and we want to, you know, we want to make sure that they know that we're doing the, the best job. Um, we want their confirmation. Really, she's she's this deadly weapon that's a four-year-old girl. Um, and we know that children can be horribly cruel to each other. There's Lord of the Flies. Um, and so they've endowed love, or Neander has endowed love with um, that, that, that sense of immorality that children have. Um, there's a wonderful sense that children have, too, a sense of naivety and wonder. But she doesn't have that. She has the sense of immorality that children can be driven to. And they use that, and it's weaponized against other people and certainly other replicants. And I think it's, a, it's, a, it's fascinating to, I mean, I need to watch it again just to kind of watch it more and, and see and witness, witness that in, at play or in play more. It's, it's very, very interesting. I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, it's Schadenfreude. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. About, uh, I couldn't agree with you. <laughs> I, I couldn't agree with we you need more a about German. That. We need a German guy here. Someone who speaks German. Come on. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more about uh, the, the, the whole uh, weaponizing thing. I uh, described Batty in a conversation uh, probably about two years ago as being a walking, talking weapon of mass destruction. Unlike Leon, who is solid muscle and who can lift these, you know, like atomic energy packs, you know, which was, must weigh a ton and he can carry them around all day, uh, Roy has an intellect to match or greater than Tyrell's own. And Tyrell, in his own way, I think is a lesser genius than Wallace has been shown to be in all but one aspect. Uh, and I think that with... Uh, so where if, if Batty was, uh, was a genius who was all but unkillable, you know, I mean, the, the, this guy was bred to kill and kill and kill and kill, and he was good at it, and he proved that by killing his way across the galaxy all the way back to Earth. You know, he, he, he got here with all the rest of them. They wouldn't have got there if it wasn't for him. And here you have this being who is so much more advanced than, than Roy was. And here you have this being who is... Uh, to my mind, she's more advanced than those around about her. He would not give praise lightly. And yes, he's, he still want to keep her there. He's want to keep her imprinted on him. And I say, and the praise is a form of imprint. But she is still the best of his angels. And by that, uh, uh, as we've said before, Jim, you know, me, the, it's, no, we're not talking about fluffy, white-winged halos. You know, like la la la. You know, not that kind of angel, but the awful kind, the kind that will. If you were to say to them, kill, you know, they would, I doubt they'd even say how many. They would just start killing until you said to them, stop. That's what love represents. But she is a killer with a brain. Uh, and it's only when she's almost feels allowed to that the, the child in her comes out. And as you say, that, that it's, it is that playground bully. It is that, you know... Uh, you're, you know, you're suffering, and I did it. I did it, but she, she didn't do it. He did it. Again, come back to the scribblings that I wrote. He, his might as well have been the hand that kills Coco. He might as well be holding the blade that that ends Joshi. You know, it might as well be his fist around hers, crushing that glass in. Wallace did that, and whether she sees it or not, and I don't think that she does see it. She is but an extension of his will. She's a vessel for him, but what a vessel she is. She is, for, for me, she's kind of like 
a great white shark of replicants. She, she almost represents the perfect pinnacle of replicant evolution insofar as killers are concerned. Sort of kind of wrap up the conversation we've been going on for a while. I mean, we, 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 I want to know a little bit more about your history with Blade Runner, Ricardo. But I, as I sit back and I think about these stories, and I was thinking about in the Bible again, there's the, the in, in the Old Testament, there's this scene or a scene. There's a, a chapter where God sends the angel of death to kill all of Egypt's firstborn. And that's what I think love is in some ways, or part of her role, not all of her role, is this angel of death, angel of destruction, an angel who gets anything, who can get whatever she wants to. Um, but it paints a really bad portrait of God at the same time. Um, maybe love is doing all of these things, but God made her do it. Um, so I, I was kind of on the fence a little bit about, um, before, like, I think we discussed this in the Wallace episode of is Wallace a bad guy or a good guy? I don't know. Wallace is a bad guy. Wallace is a bad guy. No question about it. He has, love is doing all of the things that she's doing because he told her to. So, uh, that God and that, and that story is a bad God. Yeah, I, I'd absolutely agree with you. I mean, there, there are worse stories than that, trust me. For instance, you know, coming back to you know, the, the whole playground taunting thing, one of the prophets was being taunted by a group of children outside uh, outside a village. They were throwing stones at him, calling him a mad old man. And he was. He'd been out in the desert for a long time. He'd grown his beard all the way down to his knees. And they were, they were taunting him constantly, the prophet Elisha. So what did God do? He sent a bear to tear those children limb from limb. Yes, he did. Uh, you know, so that's the God of the Old Testament, and that's the God that Wallace represents. Uh, he's a God who will uh, look out for his people in so far as it will allow them to carry on doing what they're doing, which is why I think that she believes she can kill indiscriminately within a police station and walk out of it. Uh, I, I, people have said, oh, it's a plot hole, it's a plot hole. It's not a plot hole. He's the most powerful man on earth in the colonies, for goodness sake. You know, uh, he run the life from the earth if they think that you're killing a cop or a, a technical assistant in a, in a police station is going to stop him uh, then sorry they've got the wrong guy and they've got the wrong girl here uh, she knows exactly what she can get away with she would not have lifted her hand to Coco otherwise uh, and the same with Joshi and she, she knows that because he is He's instructed her. He's taught her all all the way through her life. He's been the, the hand that guides her. Uh, keeping back to it, she's his vessel. He will protect her as long as she delivers, and for no longer, or until he has a better model. At which point, she'll go the way of the dodo. Indeed. Well, I say that uh, we kind of wrap it up there. I think that there's so much to love. There's really more to love than. It's such a double entendre. Um, there's more to that character than we can describe. We can talk about it in an hour or two. I think that she's really multifaceted. Um, again, she's. I part of her has my heart a little bit. I can see a little bit, but at the same time, I don't know if what she shows us or me is an act or if it's real. And that's that's interesting thing about love. And I think love and joy share quite a bit as well, where they're both programmed, and we don't know if what we're seeing is programming or if what we're seeing is. Uh, agency. Um, that being said, Ricardo, I want to know, tell me a little bit about how you entered the world of Blade Runner and 
what the film means to you, and and, and how when did that happen for you in your life? I don't know how old you are either, so. <laughs> Way too old. Um, <laughs> well, we have to go back to '84, and I was 14 at the time, and I went to, with my friends to have what is called at the time a double matinee at the movies. This is the only movie theater in my city, which, by the way, just on the outskirts of Lisbon, the capital of, our, of my country. But this is 84, so the Dark Ages, dinosaurs were roaming the world. I was eight years this old. This has been in some other life. <laughs> so I have no way of knowing what to expect from Blade Runner, uh, except from newspaper critics at the time, and I was too young for that. So... Me and my friends, we went to the movie, we were 14, 15 years old, and some of them already saw Star Wars, and that was the first movie, that was the 1 p.m. movie. And they told me, you are going to love the movie, the movie's great, and it did, indeed it was. This is A New Hope, of course. Uh, I saw the movie, and I was ecstatic. I was thinking to myself, oh my gosh, 15 years of this? This is going to be awesome. Spaceships and Death Stars and robots, this is great. Then the 5 p.m. movie was the Blade Runner movie. And we only the only thing we could saw was the poster. Again, you know, enigmatic enough. And I was blown out of the water, as you Americans say. I didn't know what to expect. I'm a 14-year-old. So I get into that world very, very quickly. The first scene already catch me, and I'm totally into the movie. I can feel at the moment this is a movie that is going to change my life. The anti-hero, the, 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 the person that is doing what's wrong and it's falling in love with the wrong person. And, and then he has to save her, but she saves him. So this just completely opened my mind as a 14-year-old. Now, the funny thing is that as my friends, we get out of the, the movie theater and everybody's in shock. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, everybody just dig the movie. And they all hate it. <laughs> they were like, this was one of the worst movies ever. This is terrible. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys didn't got the movie. The movie, it's beautiful. It's a fantastic movie. Now, the thing that I also remember was thinking to myself, oh, fuck, the future is going to suck. <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be terrible. And we live in a country with a lot of sun. So raining all the time was not my kind of place to be. But yeah, since then, Blade Runner was in, it's in my top five all-time movies. Changed me as a person. I have to see it at least once every six months. And then just to finish, when they announced 2049, I must confess that was a, I was very skeptical. First thing I thought to myself was, no, please don't do it. This, you guys are going to destroy the legacy of Blade Runner, the original. This is going to be terrible. And I am very happy to say that I was very, very wrong. Because the moment I sat on, a, I sat on that movie, completely different now, uh, IMAX movie, and the first moment was like, bam, I'm in again. And this is, it looks like I never left. I know many years have passed since the original, both in the real world and in the movie world. But I'm here. I always been here. I never left. So, Blade Runner. It's um, a formative movie for me. The characters are fantastic. So I. I don't know. I'm babbling like uh, you guys probably noticed because uh, this movie just fills me with um, with emotions that even now, um, 
and not trying to tell you my age, but this is 40 years after I saw that movie. No, 35 years after I saw the movie the first time, I still feel it like it's today. I still feel that emotion of being in a Blade Runner movie. Uh, I, was, I was just saying that I think uh, a trait that a lot of us have is that we were probably the, the only ones among our peer groups who are certainly one of the few people among our peer groups who got the movie when it first came out. And I think because of that, it, 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 res it was because something resounded in, in all of us. And uh, I think it's, it's why it's remained so close to us. You know, uh, there's been so many other disposable pieces of science fiction that have wandered in and out of cinema ever since. I think they've been trying to recreate it. And I think uh, that so many of us share the same depth of emotion for these movies just because they have meant so much to us for so long. I totally agree, Ian. I, yeah. I totally agree with you. And the good thing, and my deeply, uh, my big thanks and my deep respect for Jamie. He's here with us. I'm not trying to kiss his ass, but this is genuine for me. Thank you guys for doing this, for doing this conversation, doing this debate, to have the conversation going with Blade Runner. I remember Patrick on the last podcast, the, the Love podcast, he's saying, we are getting we are becoming so much better fans I'm, I'm paraphrasing but he said something like we are becoming so much better fans of blade runner because we have this and i totally agree with that sentiment yeah i, I would agree too I, I think uh these conversations make us better as people even if we come at them from different perspectives and really uh blade runner feels like home to me when i watch 2019 for sure and 2049 I, I just feel like i am in home i am home there's something about that world that is it's a very existential world and what's going on is going on in in multiple layers um and as a processor as a verbal processor as a an internal processor the movie is just speaks my language so it's it's great to be a part of a Aldarcha community and thank you ricardo for coming on but thanks guys for coming on and taking the time this is a great conversation it's the fastest hour and a half i have experienced in recording a show in forever it's crazy thank, thank you jamie, jamie. thank All you right. ian Take care, Ricardo. All right. Thanks, guys. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.